1 Samuel 29. The theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart, and we've been looking at lots of different uh, hearts, hearts that are in right places, hearts that are in bad places, and and tonight we're going to see a heart that kind of comes to the end of its road. Um, Hitting rock bottom is a phrase used in many scenarios, or he's hit rock bottom. Uh, but, but in any scenario that you can use that phrase, it always describes a situation where you've hit the lowest you can go. And, and that's where we find Saul at the end of chapter 28. He literally is on the ground, laid out, um, cannot go any lower, cannot get any worse. But those around Saul at the end of the chapter convinced him to get back up and to just go on with his life as if it was no big deal. Well, today we're going to see David end up in the same exact spot as Saul. But when David's heart hits rock bottom, his response will be the exact opposite of Saul's. So chapter 29, we begin in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed on in the re-reward with Achish. And then said the princes of the Philistines, what do these Hebrews hear? And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days or these years? And I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place which you have appointed him, and let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith shall he reconcile himself unto his master, should he not be with the heads of these men? Is not this David of whom they sang to one to another and dances, saying Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? You know, it's amazing how much damage one song can do. David just keeps this song. It's like, probably it's like, I hate this song, you know. Gets him in trouble all the time with everybody. We start here in verse 1, and, and we see that the Philistine military is assembling to march into Israel. They gather their armies together um, to Aphek. Uh, so the scene here in verse 1 shifts from Saul's perspective, where we ended chapter 28, back to David's uh, perspective. And we're going to actually go back in time a little bit to what happened just before the events of chapter 28. And so they're here gathering their armies in Aphek. Aphek is nowhere near where they end up. Aphek is a city in the Sharon Plain, northeast of Joppa. The word Aphek means fortress, so quite a few cities in Israel are named uh, Aphek because of their strong walls. Uh, The Philistines captured this particular Aphek when they took the Ark of the Covenant uh, 40 years prior to this, Um, and it became their usual rallying point when they were going to invade Israel. And so they're gathering here, uh, and the Israelites, of course, we know Saul's moving up the middle of Israel to meet them in Jezreel, uh, to fight there. Um, The fountain there just refers to the springs that are at the base of Mount Gilboa. Um, That's, remember, where God sent Gideon uh, to, you know, figure out which part of his men needed to go home because they would drink the water a certain way. And so it's the same exact spot where Saul's going to gather his army. Um, 
Well, verse 2 mentions that the lords of the Philistines, they passed on. In other words, they crossed over into Israeli territory, heading for that hill just north of the Israeli camp in the Jezreel Valley. The lords of the Philistines, they passed on by hundreds and by thousands. So all their troops are moving into Israel now. But David and his men passed on, so they cross into Israeli land as well. Israeli land as well. But they're in the rear reward with Achish. The, they're in the last part of the army that's coming up. So David, after a year and a half in Philistia, is now back in Israeli land, but this time as an invader. And being the last group of mercenaries in the army, that kept David and his man from being noticed at first by the Philistine lords. But that doesn't last forever. Look at verse 3. Then said the Philistines of, uh, said the princes of the Philistines, what do these Hebrews here? Why are we have Hebrew, we're going to fight Hebrews. Why do we have Hebrew mercenaries? And so Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, isn't this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days or these years? I mean, surely you've heard that he's working for me now, right? He's been with me, but the phrase there, um, you know, for these days or these years, it's a, a Hebrew idiom that means he's been with me for a year or two. It's been 16 months to be exact. And he tells me, he says, listen, he's you surely have heard that David's working for me now, and I have found no fault in him since he fell. The word fell means deserted, since he deserted his home and came unto me unto this day. From the moment he deserted Israel and he started working for me, he's been a solid man. I can trust him with everything. Agagis' point is that there was plenty of time to prove that David is loyal to him and not to Saul anymore, so what's the concern? Now, This is a bit of an awkward situation, of course, because David, even though we'll see shortly, he is indeed Achish's servant, but he's been covering up his lie about where the plunder he delivers to uh, Achish, where it comes from, and he's been covering it up with genocide, with wiping out entire people groups that he he pillages. So Achish should not be trusting David as much as he does here because there are faults, He's just too blinded by the pride of having won David over to see them. And that pride has also blinded him into thinking that the other Philistine leaders will be okay with Hebrew mercenaries when they find out, well, David's in charge. Why do we have Hebrew mercenaries with us? Well, (laughs) this will make all the sense when I explain it to you. David's leading them. If he thought that was going to be something that cheered them up or meant, oh, that makes perfect sense, he has the exact opposite response because it says in verse 4 that the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. The phrase there means on the verge of coming to blows. What? Are you insane? David's here? Are you crazy? You have compromised years of planning. This massive invasion has been in the works and now you've, you've wrecked it all. Now, there is a semicolon there, which means there's a pause. I don't know what happens in the pause, but we know it doesn't come to blows. Something happens during the pause, some conversation or something that allows them to conclude the issue in a more civil manner. And so the princes of the Philistines say unto King Achish, make this fellow return, and he may go again to his place where we've appointed him, back to Ziklag, all the way down in the south. And do not let him go down to the battle with us, lest he be an adversary in the battle to us. For wherewith should he reconcile himself unto his master? What's the best way that he could get in his master's good graces again? Isn't it with all of our heads, all the guys you're looking at right here? He's got easy access as your bodyguard, Achish, to the five most powerful people in Philistia. 
They reason with Achish that David is a potential foe at their backs, one with access to all their leaders because he's Achish's personal bodyguard, one who could regain Saul's favor by betraying them. And they assert in verse 5 that David's past makes him untrustworthy. Is this not David of whom they say that he's killed thousands and ten thousands of us? Now, Achish strongly disagrees with their assessment, but he relents because the entire campaign is on hold unless he sends David all the way back to Ziklag. So verse 6, he comes to David and he gives him the bad news. Then Achish called David, verse 6, and said unto him, surely... As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the host is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming unto me unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Wherefore, now return and go in peace that you displease not the Lord of the Philistines. Surely, which means I speak the truth, I'm not exaggerating here, David, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and everything you've done, going out and coming in, has been good, as far as I'm concerned. This is very interesting because Achish, who we know is a pagan man, is using this Israeli oath. And by using an Israeli oath, it shows us that David did not adopt Philistine worship during this time of backsliding. He did not turn to mediums like Saul, even though David couldn't worship the Lord because he couldn't go to the tabernacle, right? He didn't go into Israel, so he had no means biblically to worship the Lord. It also shows that David's nonconformity to Philistine religious beliefs was well known, so much so that Achish uses a phrase that would mean something to David, even though it meant nothing to himself. However, while all that's true, it is sad that the only person who invokes the Lord's name during this time of backsliding is an unbeliever. (laughs) In all the time that we see David in the land of Philistia, he never invokes the Lord's name, not until he hits rock bottom. And you know, that's what happens when we backslide. You know, people become familiar with our religious ideas, but not the God we serve. They see enough in our lives to know we have a creed, but they aren't touched by that creed because there's no intimacy with Jesus. There's nothing different about us than other people who also have a creed. And that's why when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't start with, you are the light of the world. He starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He starts with the attributes of a believer in the kingdom. He starts with the attributes, the pursuits, the heart's desires, and the blessings that come with the person who is close to the Lord. And the result of that is, you are the light of the world, (laughs) The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes before it exhorts us to let our light shine because the light that we shine is formed from intimacy with Jesus. And so I would say to you tonight, if you're backslidden, don't wait until you hit rock bottom to, get, to be close to Jesus again. You know, he's just one step back and he's waiting for you with open arms. That's one of the things I love about the Lord is that he's always just one step back, Amen. He's never, he's not like, well, you've gone 13 steps away, you've got to take 13 steps back. It's always just turn around and start walking with the Lord again. And you know, that's the other difference between Saul and David. 
David missed the Lord when he went astray, didn't he? We read about in the Psalms when he's away from the Lord. Saul never gives any indication that he missed the Lord, only the Lord's blessings. Well, David and uh, Achish informs David that even though he, he believes that David's been a good guy and he trusts him, he has to leave because the others don't trust him. The others don't have favor upon him. He says, surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright. It means the opposite of crooked. And again, that's not quite true, Achish, but you don't know because David's done a good job of keeping this secret from you. Surely as the Lord lives, you've been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me in the host. In other words, I've treated you like equals to everyone else in the army and the way you've conducted yourself is good to me. The word good means favorable. You know, I, I look upon it well. For I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming unto me unto this day. The problem isn't me. The problem is the Lord's favor you not. The word favor there is the same word as good when he says your coming and going is good to me. He says, I'm fine with you being here in this manner, but the other leaders aren't. Wherefore, because of their concerns, not mine, you need to go back. Now return and go in peace. Do not create a stink when you leave so that you do not displease the lords of the Philistines. The word there, displease, means to do evil. Don't raise a stink about this and prove their point, and then things do come to blows. And you know, for David, this is just one more injustice. Even though he hasn't been completely honest with Achish, it's just one more injustice he sees it as. Verse 8, And David said unto Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servants so long as I have been with you unto this day that I may not go fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? These are such similar words to the ones that David speaks to Saul. When Saul's out chasing, he goes, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? It's almost like David, this broken record of just injustice over and over and over again. He's like, oh, what is it this time? You know, remember when, the, when the, he comes up to, dad sends him to bring some pizza to the boys when they're up there waiting to fight Goliath? And uh, that's, the veg, that's how it works in VeggieTales, right? It's pizza. <laughs> Biblically accurate, so kosher pizza. And so he, he, you know, he goes up and he brings the, the, you know, the food to the brothers. And then, you know, the oldest one comes out and he goes, I know why you're here. You're, you're not out here to bring food. You're here because you want to see the battle and you're curious. And what's David's response? What have I done wrong now? <laughs> it's like his whole life has been this life of injustice after injustice after injustice after injustice. And he figures he's fled all of that. And here it comes yet again. What have I done what have you found in your servants so long as I have been with you unto this day? <laughs> now, in the past, every time David has said those things, there was nothing he could have been accused of. But this time, if someone looked hard enough, what have you found? I don't know. You've wiped out entire people groups to cover up your lie about where you're getting your plunder from? Maybe. Maybe it's not <laughs> other people who are being unjust toward you, David. Maybe the Lord's trying to get your attention. Isn't it sad how a person gets so offended when someone says they don't trust them, but they're not even being completely honest? There's something warped in us when we lie that says, but you should trust me because I don't lie about everything. I'm generally trustworthy, sort of, kind of. 
Oh, we want people to take us at our word so badly even if there's no reason for them to. I, I think I see this most often in children, particularly teenagers. They'll meet with them, my parents don't trust me. And you know, what I want to say is correct because you've given them no reason to. Well, I only stole the credit card once. My dad. Beverly can attest to the truth of this. If I was one minute late on my curfew, it was, I was grounded for like weeks. One minute late. And, and it was such a good lesson for me to learn as a young person because my dad would say to me, he'd say, son, it's not the amount of time you're late or on time It's whether what I say matters to you or not and whether you're gonna give it a high priority or not. Because if you're gonna not give what I say a high priority, then you're not giving what the Lord says a high priority because he says to honor your father and mother. Really good lesson, really good lesson. I thought it was so unfair. Being trustworthy in a few areas does not make up for being untrustworthy in our other areas. It's why lying is right up there with murder and sexual sin and theft and all the other things on the ugly lists. And it's why God hates it. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, it says this. It says, lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but those that deal truly are his delight. Abomination, that's a pretty strong word. I mean, we tend to reserve that for things that just make us go, yick, right? You know, I mean, I I see Christians use that word quite frequently about certain things. But more often than not, I don't tend to hear it used when someone tells a lie and says, that's an abomination. You did too get to pee all over the toilet. Take your abominable self and go to your room. We don't do that. (laughs) But the Lord, he does see it that way. You see, dishonesty, even when undiscovered, still destroys trust. Because when you're lying, you put up walls to protect the lie. Meaning then that the other person is kept at a distance from you. Dishonesty, when discovered destroys whatever trust existed. And it makes you start from square one. No, it makes you start behind square one because it makes it difficult to even find a new starting place of trust. In Proverbs 28, 15, it has a very vivid picture of lying. It says in Proverbs 25, 18, that a man that bears false witness against his neighbor is an axe and a sword and a sharp arrow. I don't think the, the Solomon is going, man, a guy who lies is as sharp as a tack. No, he's saying you're destructive. You hurt people. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, addressing this same topic, It says, 
First Peter three ten. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile, King James says. It means deceit. In other words, let them speak nothing deceitful. Let him eschew. I love that's a good King James word because it, it, it means to just absolutely Reject. It means, you know, to, to turn your back on. Let him eschew evil, turn your back on it and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Lying has a negative effect whether you're caught or not. And David is experiencing this now even though he truly believes he deserves the Philistines' trust. And yet, as we look at all that, we miss something even deeper at work here, something just as sinister as lying. Because by David's statement that he says, why can I not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? He's talking about his own people there. Why can't I go fight my own people for you? Sixteen months of serving Achish has whittled away at David to the point that he's ready now to fight against his own people. When he uses this phrase, my Lord, the king, you realize that's the same exact phrase he used to describe his loyalty to Saul. Why is my Lord, the king, come out to seek me? David is offended. Not because he knows he's been sterling in his character, but because he's truly ready to prove his loyalty to Achish on the battlefield against his own people. And thus in this, David isn't just lying to Achish. David's lying to himself. Because we see the dishonesty with himself here so deep that he actually considers himself a Philistine subject and not an Israeli subject anymore. And perhaps this genuine commitment to the Philistine cause is why Achish has such a favorable view of David even though David's holding things back. And so in verse 9, David, or Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are good in my sight as an angel of God. Notwithstanding, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore, now rise up early in the morning with your master's servants that are come with you, and as soon as you be up early in the morning and have light, depart. And so David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return into the land of the Philistines. <laughs> and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Achish agrees that the decision is unjust. He says, listen, I know that you are good in my sight, like an angel of God. A mess- You're like a messenger from God, man. And what's sad is that was true. David was God's envoy, but he's being a horrible ambassador right now. One that Achish sees as a blessing because of all the plunder that David brings in. But David can never share about his relationship with God, with Achish, because doing so would mean confessing his deceit. (laughs) And thus, Achish's experience of Jehovah through David is surface level only. And yet, Achish's high view of David isn't enough to change other people's minds. And so he orders David to return to Ziklag. 
He said, David, you still got to go. Wherefore now, rise up early in the morning with your master's servant, servants that are come with you, you and all your men, all the Hebrew mercenaries, and as soon as you be up early in the morning and have light, depart. I don't want you wasting any time. Your presence has created a problem, and I need to mitigate it immediately. I need you gone before the sun begins to, you know, really get up in the morning. So David did. David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return into the land of the Philistines. The Philistines went up to Jezreel. Can you imagine how defeated David must feel right now? Nothing's worked for him up to this point. Not in Israel and now not here. And yet, (laughs) David still hasn't hit rock bottom yet. It's going to take one more heartbreaking circumstance to bring him there. Chapter 30, verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire. And they had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. And so David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Now, we know from, I think it's chapter 27, that the Amalekites were one of the groups that David had been raiding, right? Remember, he was telling Achish, he says, oh, you know, where did you get all this stuff, all this plunder from, man? He goes, I'm hitting all the southern targets in my old homeland, hitting, hitting Judah and hitting this spot, hitting this spot, when really he's been raiding further south of Philistia in the desert where the Amalekites and these a couple other groups are. So this is one of the groups that David's been raiding, killing everybody. But this isn't revenge against David. It says they invade the south, the the Negev there, the southern region of Philistia. They raid multiple regions, uh, places in the southern part of Philistia. And and we see here they don't wipe out the women and children. So this is not revenge. This is just the Amalekites are raiders. It's what they do. And so what's ironic here is that David fled to Philistia because it was his only safe option, right? He would never survive if he stayed in Israel. And yet, nothing like this experience had ever happened to him and his men while they were in Israel. Had it? Nope. There is never, never more safety out of the will of God, no matter how things appear, no matter how bad things may seem. No matter what you and I can reason out, there is never more safety out of the will of God than in it. Because everything they built in the last 16 months, all the comfort, all the sense of safety, all the sense that everything's better now, all that was built for these last 16 months out of the will of God is now destroyed. Everything dearest to them, what had been built over a lifetime, was now lost. And so, verse 4, it says, Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and they wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were included in this, these captives. They were taken captives, the Hinnom, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. David thought things couldn't be worse than they were in Israel, but now he sees what worse is. He's in a place where he's so brokenhearted that he doesn't have any more tears he can cry. He's in a place where he's caused all of his closest friends 
to be in the same exact position as he is. And everything that David grabbed in disobedience to God to establish some sense of control over his life, to take back what had been taken from him, now it was all destroyed. Psalm 127 is a psalm that's popularly used, and rightfully so, um, about families and the blessedness of having a family. But verse 1 is so crucial across the board. In Psalm 127, verse 1, it says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city. The watchman wakes or stays awake, keeps himself up, but in vain. It doesn't matter how much planning you go into it. If you're the one building the house, it's not going to stand. So don't, let, don't build your own house. Don't try to build your own house. Let the Lord do it. Now, while this is absolutely awful, things can and they do get worse for David. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> and David was greatly distressed. Why? No, no. The word there, distressed, means to be tied up to the max. The same exact position that Saul was in. The same exact word that Saul used for why he needed to call up Samuel. When Samuel says, why have you disquieted me? Why have you called me up? He used the same exact phrase. I have nowhere else to go. I am out of options. David says the same thing here about himself, or the writer here says about him. David was tied up to the max. There was no other place. He was in a corner at the bottom, nowhere else to go. And why was he there? For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. These men who had remained loyal to David through the most difficult of trials. They had lived in caves with David. They had been through the worst of times with him. They said, we're done. We are done following you, and we are going to stone you to death for what you've put us through. Now, stoning was a way of killing someone that was um, how you'd handle capital crimes. It was a, that was capital punishment. Their electric chair, in a sense. It comes from a word that means to take away. And so the idea is that when someone does something that is so heinous like this, that it's not just that they have to be incarcerated or imprisoned or even killed. They must be stoned because the idea is by stoning them, you're showing that you don't agree with anything they did. And thus you're removing the guilt away from the land. Stoning was used not just to punish the worst criminals, but it was seen as the community dealing with sin so God wouldn't have to. God wouldn't judge them for tolerating sin because they had taken such a strong stand against it. David's men, they knew they had no business being in Philistia. They knew it was wrong to wipe out women and children. They knew it was wrong to lie. And so by the fact that they're going to stone David here, they're talking about it, it means that they see this tragedy that they've experienced as God's judgment for David's poor decisions. Now, were David's decisions poor? Yes. Did this happen because David was disobedient? Well, yes, it's not going to happen if he's in Israel. But were the Amalekites their attack against Ziglag, God's judgment? No. 
No, they were not. And you say, how is that different? How, how can you say that? Well, here's the reality. When we go outside the will of God, we, God doesn't have to do anything to us. When we go outside the will of God, what we begin to do is we expose ourselves. We are leaning on our own understanding, and the Scripture tells us that when we lean on our own understanding, our paths won't be straight, right? That's why it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understanding, and He'll make all your paths straight, right? He'll direct your paths. Well, David's on a place where the Lord's not directing His paths. And when we lean on our own understanding and the Lord's not directing our paths, we're going to take wrong turns into dangerous places, places we would never be if we continued following the Lord. You know, David was able to say later on in the 23rd Psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The difference between this situation and the valley of the shadow of death is the shepherd's leading you through the valley of the shadow of death. And that makes it okay because he's with you in it. Here, David is on his own in a place he should have never been. And while David's men, because of the pain they're experiencing, they can't separate those two things out, David does understand that. And thus... David finally hits rock bottom. He finally comes to the place where there's nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. And David, unlike Saul, finally does. And thus, at the end of verse 6, we have one of the most audacious verses in all of Scripture. (laughs) And David encouraged himself in the Lord. I remember there was a time... And me and Bev had, we had been unwise with our finances. This is early in our marriage. And we were experiencing some really difficult troubles because we had made some bad decisions. And I remember when we hit rock bottom and we had nowhere else to turn, that I looked at Bev and I said, well, it looks like we just need to trust the Lord. I remember she looked at me. She's like, trust the Lord? She's like, how can we trust the Lord? We did this to ourselves. What do you mean trust the Lord? And I said, that's the only thing we can do at this point in time. We have to hope in his mercy. We have to look to him and say, Lord, we put ourselves in this mess. We can't get ourselves out of it. So we look to you as our source of strength. We're going to walk with you moving forward from here on out. And we're asking you to rescue us even though we don't deserve it. We're going to hope in your mercy. The things that she was communicating are things we all struggle with all the time. How many times do you find yourself in a... I know I do all the time. I verbalize exactly what she verbalized to me. You know, the Lord's like, come to me, come to me, come yoke in with me. And I'm like, Lord, I'm in this mess because I didn't yoke in with you. You know, how can I come to you now? I don't deserve to come to you. I'm not worthy to come to you. I just, I just have to eat my, you know, yucky food that I cooked for myself. And that was a bad illustration because I made it up as I was going. Like most of my illustrations, just most of them are slightly better than that. But you know, that's the lie of the enemy. The lie of the enemy is that somehow, because you're in this mess because of bad decision-making, that God's looking at you going, yeah, you're going to eat that, and you're going to see how that tastes. I'm going to stretch this illustration as far as I can. (laughs) I'm going to make it work. (laughs) 
But that is not how the Lord operates with us. He doesn't... (laughs) Well, I've offended one person. Anybody else don't like my food illustrations? Hit the door. We find ourselves in these places where, you know, the enemy has brought fear into our lives, worry, doubt, anger. I mean, all the various things you can name, and then we give into it. We go down this path we shouldn't go. We stop walking with the Lord in a situation. We go down this path we shouldn't go. And then what does the enemy heap on top of it? Then he goes, I can't believe what you've done. You know, look at you. Look at the poor decisions you made. Look at the foolishness you're, you, you've, you, you've committed, and look at where you are right now. You know, God, God can't do, take you back. God can't work in your life anymore. And he makes us believe this idea somehow that, well, I'm here because God's judging me and God's done with me. When the entire time the Lord is just saying, come back, come back. You know, come to my throne of grace. You need help. You need mercy. You need grace to help in time of need. The only place you're going to get it is here, Will. If you keep going down this road, you keep trying to do things your way, you're just going to compile the problems. I mean, that's the, the story of Saul's life, right? You know, Lord says, come. And he's got so many opportunities where Saul has the opportunity to come, and Saul just never comes. And what it becomes is this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, God's going to judge you. And in the end, there's just nothing else to do. The Lord just has to take him out because there's nothing to do with him. You won't come to me. It's the same sad story that Jesus does when he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's like, how I desired to gather you as a hen does her chicks, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't have me. I mean, think about that just for a moment. All the nonsense they've put him through for three years, three years of a perfect earthly ministry, three years of great patience with all their arrogance and all their prejudice and all the issues that they've got. And he's the one weeping. I love this verse. But... The phrase actually means, so then. <laughs> in light of, they, everybody wants to kill me, and probably rightfully so, because this is my fault. So what's the logical course of action to do right now? I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. Because it is the only logical course of action at this point. Where else are you going to go? In response to his tied up to the max situation, he says, well, I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord my God. That tied up to the max is the very definition of rock bottom. Completely backed into a corner with nowhere else to go on your own, and the only way out is if someone from outside your corner intervenes. And so David encourages himself in the Lord his God. That word encourage, it's a crazy word because it's the same exact word that's used for hardening your heart. But it's obviously in the right way. It means to strengthen, to establish. It's what we do when we harden our hearts against the Lord. We strengthen and establish our position. And we say, I'm not budging, God. 
What David's doing is he's doing the same thing, but in the positive way. He's strengthening, hardening, encouraging, you know, empowering his heart to say, I'm going to stand in the Lord because it's all I got. I, I know I don't deserve to be here. I know I don't deserve to come to the Lord, but it's all I got. It's the only answer. And I'm going to hold on with everything I've got, and I'm not letting go. Because it's the only way out. David rallies his strength for the next step by finally looking for a source of strength that doesn't come from himself, from his own intellect, his own planning, his own abilities. And he finds it in the Lord by turning back to his God. A personal relationship again. This isn't about David finding religion or getting spiritual. This is something internal. It's, it's personal, it's relational, it's intimate. It's a change of heart. It's repentance. And it's the beginning of David's journey out of rock bottom. <laughs> you know, when we hit rock bottom, there are always reasons. And if we continue the same reasoning, the same line of thinking that got us into the rock bottom situation, if we do not change direction, then we will remain in that pit or even worse. And so my encouragement to you tonight is don't be like Saul. <laughs> Both Saul and David did ugly things, but only one of them turned to the Lord when they hit the bottom. My might be saying, well, you, you don't know what my bottom is. You don't know how ugly it is. It does not matter how ugly the past has been for you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 still stands true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? It doesn't matter. There's no qualifier there. Well, if you only reach ugly level 6 and confess your sins, then he's faithful and just, you know? If you go any further than that, you hit a level seven ugliness, you're nope. First John 1, 9 does not apply anymore. You need to find some other answer. And so if you're headed in the wrong direction tonight, repent. It's a beautiful word. It's what David does here. Repent. Encourage yourself in the Lord. God loves you, and he wants to help, even if you're at the ugliest rock bottom a person can be in. in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, I've already <clears throat> quoted portions of it a few times, but I'll, I'll leave you with this verse tonight. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 4.15, it says, for we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched, King James says, it means cannot sympathize with the feeling of our infirmities, with our weaknesses. But he was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Think about what that means for just a minute. Wherever you've given into, Jesus has been at the place where you make the choice to give in or not. 
And he is the only person who never gave in. So, in light of that, and he's sympathetic to the temptation. He's sympathetic to the struggle we have. He's been there. He knows everything you went through, all the thoughts that the enemy plugged in your head, all the temptations, all the, 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 the senses of the flesh. He, he understands all that. He can sympathize. But in light of the fact that he didn't, he never gave in, he says, therefore, let us come boldly, confidently, frankly is the most literal translation, with frankness. You know, when someone says, let me be frank with you, the idea is that it's just come just as you are. I mean, I'm going to let it all hang out. And that, that's the idea here. I, I, you, he says, come as you are. Let us therefore come boldly without hiding anything. Don't dress it up to make it look pretty. Don't come and bring the ugly and go and, well, God, you know, I mean, any, lots of people do these things. No, don't dress it up. Don't make it look nicer than it is. You come just as you are and, and you just be frank with the Lord. Come boldly unto his throne of grace. Why? Because we deserve it or because we've earned it or we've worked our way back? No. So that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we look in the garden and we see God creating Adam and Eve and we see the statement that's made when they become one and it says the two were there and they were naked and unashamed. There's so much we don't, there's a reason we wear clothes. There's a reason we don't walk around like that because there's things we don't want people to see. There's ways that we don't want people to see us. And when we understand that marriage is ultimately to be a picture of Christ's love for his bride, for us, the concept is, is that he looks at us and everything in us just wants to lower our head and say, don't look at me like that. I don't want you to see me like this. And what he says is it says, it says in the Song of Solomon, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you because he has washed us clean. The best place to go when it's as ugly as ugly can be is just to come just as you are and to run right into those arms of love knowing that you're fully accepted, that your conscience has been washed and sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Is it pretty? Not from my perspective. But all that matters is his perspective. And his opinion is vastly different than mine. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you are the glory and the lifter of our head. Lord, we don't radiate any glory of our own. Oh, we are image bearers, and there's something glorious about that, certainly. Lord, we don't have an innate righteousness, any innate thing to boast of. And yet, Lord, you lift our head up. You cause us to look on you face to face. You invite us, Lord, into the secret place with you.
where nothing is hidden, nothing is held back. And so, Lord, tonight, we choose to believe what you say and not how we feel. We choose to believe the truth of your word, the promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. You do forgive us. You do cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You keep your word. And based upon everything you did for us on the cross, that we have access to that throne of grace so that when we find ourselves in the ugliest of places, we can come running back to you and say, Lord, I rally my strength to come here because it's the only place left to go. Lord, help us to choose that best place even when we are in our worst place, just like David did. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.